15, and we'll be studying the whole of this short psalm this morning together, Psalm 15. We're thinking this morning of the theme, Wanted, a worthy worshipper, a worthy worshipper. wonder, is there something you can look back on in life and gladly say, I was there. Maybe you got to go to uh, a, great, a great performance of one of your favourite music artists, one of those gigs that has gone down as one of their best ever performances and you were there. And maybe you managed to get tickets to see your favourite rugby or football team uh, win a famous victory. Some people will be able to say that they were in London for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. For those kinds of big events, 99.9% of people have to watch on TV if they get to experience it at all. Only a few people get to say, I was there. I was with those people. I saw that person in that time or that place. Well, Psalm 15 asks a far more important question than who gets to go to the World Cup or the Queen's Jubilee. Here the question is, who gets to be with God forever? Who gets to be with God forever? Look how the psalm begins, verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The same question being asked two different ways. Who gets to be with God? Who is it that when they approach God in worship or in prayer or at the end of their life on earth when they will be forced to stand before God, who will be accepted Who is welcomed? Who is worthy to be with God? Of course, many people today don't think that that's a very important question. Some people claim that there is no God to be with when we die, an attitude that we thought about last week, uh, the attitude of the fool in Psalm 14. And of course, if, if that notion was true, that there's no God, of course, it invites the question, well, why does anything ultimately matter if there is no God and no eternity nothing beyond this short life why would anything matter other people think that there's a spark of divinity a bit of God if you like in all of us that we're all we all have the potential to be gods that we simply need to be our best selves uh, achieve our own goals fulfill our potential and essentially we can be our own gods And yet one glance at the mess that our world is in should tell you that human beings are not gods. War, division, online or physical abuse of one kind or another to say nothing of the millions of sins, little sins we would perhaps call them day by day that we commit. We're not all powerful, we get tired. We're not all knowing, we often don't know what to do. We're not gods. We're sinners. There is only one perfect eternal God and we are not him. But we were made to be with God, to reflect his glory, to enjoy him forever. Over and over again, his word, the Bible, in his word, God declares that he wants to bring a people to be with him, to gather a people unto himself. So who are those people? Who gets to be with God forever? Well, this psalm gives us the answer. I want to think, first of all, with you this morning about the fact that this psalm demands too much. It's a psalm that demands too much. 
question is asked in verse 1 and the rest of the psalm is the answer to this question. Who shall dwell with God on his holy hill? Many of us have had to fill out job applications at various times or other similar forms. You read the the job description and really very quickly you know whether or not you meet the requirements. Maybe they ask for three years experience in the field. Maybe they ask for a willingness to travel. Maybe they ask for particular GCSEs or A-levels and so on. Well here this psalm is essentially laying out the qualifications for eternal life. Look at verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. That's who gets to be with God. The word there for blameless means a complete person. A person of integrity. A, a, a completely trustworthy person. A completely patient person. Someone completely free of any imperfection. Notice verse 2. It says it's someone who speaks the truth in his heart. Interesting contrast there, by the way, with Psalm 14, verse 1, which we thought about last week. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the fool speaks lies in his heart. Psalm 15 says that the person who gets to be with God speaks the truth in his heart. Verse 3 describes the speech required of this person. He doesn't slander people. He's not trying to get dirt on people or make them look bad. He's not out to embarrass anyone just to make himself look better. Verse 3 also says that he doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. In other words, when everyone else is taking a turn, having a bit of a laugh or slagging someone off behind their backs, this person doesn't take up the chance to do that. When it's their turn to throw out a joke or an insult at someone else's expense. He refuses. Verse 4 says that the worthy worshipper despises a vile person. That word for vile means someone who has rejected God's authority. Who knows what God has said. Who knows what God requires and sort of stubbornly, arrogantly turns their back upon it. In the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel on one occasion tells King Saul that his kingdom is being taken away from him because he has rejected God. He's done a vile thing. He has turned his back upon what God has said. This worthy man doesn't even keep company with those kinds of people. He honours those who fear the Lord, it says. He loves to be with other people who love God. He seeks out their company at every opportunity. Verse 4 says, this man always keeps his word. Always. Even when it becomes inconvenient, he sticks to his promises. He swears to his own hurt, it says, and does not change. Verse 5 says he doesn't engage in usury or bribery. God's law in the Old Testament forbade people to charge interest in personal transactions. There was to be no one taking advantage of vulnerable people, no bribery, no exploitation. And this man honours that. He doesn't exploit anyone he doesn't he's not underhand in his dealings he is a straight shooter you would say friends here's a worthy worshipper you could sum it up by saying that he loves God and he loves his neighbor remember Jesus said in Mark 12 verse 30 that's that sums up the law of God love for God and love for neighbor 
That's what Psalm 15 is describing. And if you do all of that, you get to be with God. But there's a problem for each and every one of us as we consider this description. But if this is what it takes for us to enjoy life with God, to, to be there with God in eternity, then this psalm demands too much. We don't really need to go any further than verse 2 before we run into problems. Are you a blameless, complete person? Have you never had to say, that was my fault, I'm to blame? Have you or I never said anything about anyone that wasn't necessary, true and fair? Or have we joined in when the insults and the put downs have been getting thrown about? Have we always sought and always highly valued the company of God's people beyond anything else? Or have there been times when we've made excuses for not gathering with them, serving alongside them? Have we spent time instead listening to the babblers and the pagans of the world who have rejected God's word and God's authority? Have we always been wise and generous with our money? Do we see it as something to use for God's glory and not just our own pursuits, not just something to get at all costs, no matter what we might do to others in the process? Have we always kept our word? Or have we let someone down because it became inconvenient for us? The answers to such questions are obvious, aren't they? This psalm demands too much. This is more than we are. It's more than we can give. There's a modern worship song. I think the title of it is Come Just As You Are to Worship. Certainly those words are in it. Come Just As You Are to Worship. And likely the point of that song is that we would never exclude anyone from joining with us when we gather to worship God. We would never say you're not wearing the right clothes or you don't have the right last name or your reputation isn't good enough. We, we welcome anyone and everyone to come and to worship God. But the psalm is not talking about who gets to sit in the pews or in the seats in church. This psalm is talking about who gets a seat in heaven. Who gets to enjoy the gracious, welcoming, merciful presence of God forever. And in that sense, friends, we cannot come to God just as we are. Our bad temper, our self-righteousness, our lust, our laziness, our impatience... Our gossip, our dishonesty means that we cannot come just as we are to worship. Habakkuk 1 verse 13 says of God, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot look at wrongdoing. God cannot stand the sight of human sin. His holiness won't tolerate it. He must have nothing to do with it or he would not be God. Maybe there are certain smells that you just cannot have in the house. As soon as there's an odour from the kitchen bin, you have to get it out. You have to get it to outside. Maybe there's certain car air fresheners. Um, I was amazed on one occasion at a friend in the car and they just could not stand the car air freshener I had. Uh, please don't be afraid to tell me if you're ever in the car with me that you just can't stand the air freshener. But they said, I, I can't have that and had to, had to get it out. That's our holy God. When he smells the stench of our sins, so to speak, he cannot have it. We cannot dwell with him. 
Friends, if Psalm 15 describes who gets to be with God, it's a psalm that demands too much. But secondly, it's also a psalm that describes just one person. A psalm that describes just one person. The psalm asks too much of you and me, but thankfully, praise God, it describes one person perfectly. Charles Spurgeon says, The man in this psalm is primarily Jesus, the perfect man. And in him, all who through grace are conformed to his image. It is primarily Jesus, he says, the perfect man. And I want to consider the psalm again with you and I want you to see how it describes Jesus. So look again at verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. We'll compare that to what we read of Jesus in Luke chapter 2 verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. Matthew 26, 60 tells us that at his trial, that sham trial that Jesus was subjected to, Jesus' enemies were looking for false testimony about him, something that they could pin on him to put him to death, and they couldn't find anything. For a while, they couldn't even find two liars to tell the same lie about Jesus. Isaiah 53 says that he, uh, or sorry, rather, uh, verse 3 lays out the requirements of our speech. And again, we think of of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 says that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Again, in the midst of the mockery and the trials of Jesus before his death, people were throwing all sorts of false accusations and insults and lies at him. And Jesus wisely remained silent and refused to throw back even one angry or bitter word. Verse 4 demands that we not go back on our word even when we realise it will cost us. Remember, friends, how Jesus began to consider what it would cost him to go to the cross. As he thought about that in Gethsemane, his body went into a sort of a, a shock as he sweated blood and as he pleaded with his father and yet he stayed the course. And he remained faithful to the word that he had given to his father in eternity past. That he would be the one to die for our sins. He kept his word even when it hurt. Verse 5 says this worthy man cannot be bribed. He's not underhand in his dealings. When Satan took Jesus to the highest point of the temple. And promised him all the kingdoms of the earth. If only he bowed down and worshipped. Jesus said get out of my sight Satan. Jesus was incorruptible. The psalm demands too much of us. And yet not all of us. Because Jesus became one of us. Jesus put himself under the law of God to say and think and do everything that the law requires to take our place. To succeed where we failed. Our catechism in the bulletin this week is incredibly appropriate for what we're thinking about. Do trust you read the question and answer each week in the larger catechism. Why was it necessary that the mediator should be man? Question 39. It was necessary that the mediator should be man so that he might advance our nature. That is, take on our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us. Have a fellow feeling of our infirmities that we might receive the adoption of sons. Jesus took on our form so that he could 
experience all that we experience, even the temptations of Satan, and yet remain free from sin. Jesus is the blameless, complete, worthy, the the only one worthy of being with God. And that's exactly what Jesus enjoys today, fellowship with God the Father, unbroken, perfect fellowship forever, because he's worthy. As Reformed Christians, we don't believe we're obligated to observe what's known as the traditional Christian calendar. God has only commanded that we observe the one holy day, the weekly Lord's Day. Christmas and Easter are probably the best known and most widely celebrated days in the church calendar. But there are lots of other days, one of which is Ascension Day. Ascension Day was observed by the church as early as the 300s AD on the 40th day after Easter Sunday commemorating Jesus ascending into heaven. Psalm 15 was often sung on Ascension Day because it perfectly, perfectly describes the man who was worthy to ascend into heaven, who was worthy, as Psalm 110 says, to sit down at the right hand of the Father. Only the blameless man gets to do that. Only the complete man who has loved God and loved neighbour perfectly and the really remarkable thing is that by simply believing in the righteousness of this man believing that he has taken our sin upon himself we can be saved and we can be covered by that righteousness of Christ and we can be welcomed into God's presence as well again Spurgeon rightly said that Sam, the man in Psalm 15 is primarily Jesus But also he says, in him, all who through grace are conformed to his image. Or as Paul said, we read it earlier in Romans 5.18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made Righteous. Paul says there that the reason we're all so incapable of meeting the requirements of God's law is because of that sinful nature of Adam that lurks within all of us. In Eden, Adam was our representative, our federal head, so to speak. What he said and did, he did on behalf of all of us. The same way today a president or a prime minister, when they speak with national leaders, they're speaking for their whole nation. When Putin declared war in Ukraine, he was declaring that the whole of Russia, all the Russian people, were at war with Ukraine. And similarly, Adam in the Garden of Eden was our representative before God, and he doomed us all into sin. But, says Paul, there is another man, a perfect man, the Lord Jesus. And we can have our allegiance transferred from Adam to Christ. Because on the cross, that perfect man offered himself up for imperfect people. And we can look at him and say, there's my righteousness. There's my blamelessness. There's my record of never, uh, never breaking my word, never mistreating someone else, never speaking a word uh, of wickedness. There's the one who covers me. There's the one who welcomes me. There's the one who is provided a way for me into heaven and fellowship with God. 
Spurgeon again says, Without the wedding dress of righteousness in Christ, we have no right to sit at the banquet of communion. What he meant is that being a Christian is like having those beautiful robes placed upon you, covering up all the blemishes. Jesus literally says to you, I've got you covered. You're not blameless, but I'm blameless. You don't have a perfect record. Take my perfect record. You haven't met God's requirements. I have met God's requirements. And I can cover all your sin. And so the question for you today is, are you trying to earn your way into God's presence? Or are you resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Christian, have you fallen in? And this can happen to the most genuine, sincere believers. We can fall into, uh, we, can, we can lose sight of the grace that has saved us and the grace that sustains us. And we start thinking, well, I haven't done enough of this or I've done too much of that or committed that sin one too many times. No. The righteousness of Christ covers over all our sin. He is our worthy worshiper. He is the one who brings us to the holy hill of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. Believe that, rest in that today for your salvation. So it's a psalm that demands too much of us, a psalm that describes just one person. And thirdly and finally, a psalm that can direct our whole lives. A psalm that can direct our whole lives. Jesus doesn't just save us from death. He then directs us how we are to live. If you watch a film, either some of the credits come at the beginning of the film. That's the, all those names and all those jobs that have been done in the film. Uh, either some of them come at the beginning or all of them come at the very end of the film. If some of them come at the beginning, the, last, the very last name that will appear on the screen as the movie begins is always the name of the director. Directed by whoever. If all the credits come at the end of the movie... The very first name that will appear on the screen is the name of the director. Attention is given to the director in either case because it is the director's film. He or she is the one telling this story and telling it in the particular way that they want to tell it. It's the director that gets the final say over the score, the music, uh, the lighting. It's the director that keeps telling the actors to say their lines or to stand in a certain way until they do it the way the director wants. They get the final say on everything because it is their story. It is their film. Well, God in his word, friends, has the final say on how we are to live our lives. He directs us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're saved by faith alone, yes. But that faith then shows up. The evidence of it is seen in how your life is directed Jesus says in John 15 verse 14 to his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Some Christians today have the mistaken notion that once you're saved, there are no more commands to worry about. Jesus says, no, if you love me, you will do what I have commanded you to do. Speaking of the Ten Commandments, the law of God, we're saved by the good works of Jesus to do good works of our own. We're saved by the good works of Jesus to do good works of our own for the glory of God. And so as we read or sing Psalm 15, not only are we singing a description that is perfectly true of Jesus, but more and more 
a description that we hope and pray will be true of us by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If we're convicted that we do join in with the gossip or the insults or the complaining about others, then out of love for Jesus we should stop that and pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. If we look at Jesus' example and feel convicted that we do give our word and then break it a bit too easily in certain situations, then we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would change that aspect of our lives. Are we willing to grow and change and imitate Christ even in those areas where it costs us? When Paul describes the scriptures to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16, he tells Timothy what the purpose of the Bible is. He says that the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. Similar language to what we find here in Psalm 15. Blameless. Complete. Equipped for every good work. And if we stick to the directives of God, friends. The sort of directives that we have here in Psalm 15. Increasingly, these descriptions will be true of us. And the effects of that will be wonderful. For one thing, other people will see Jesus more clearly in us. That's the purpose of the Christian life, to tell others and to show others by how we live. The central place that Jesus Christ is to have in the hearts of all of us. Here's a psalm to help us show Jesus and the the life of Jesus to our colleagues, to our spouse, to our unsaved neighbour. Here's a psalm to help us show Jesus more clearly to our children. Or to the children that we lead in some of the summer work that some of you might be involved in, the camps or other things. They'll see Jesus in us if we commit ourselves to these directives. Another impact of living out the directives of God will be that our assurance of salvation will be strengthened. Some Christians, genuine Christians, do worry about where they will be when they die. They they start to to worry. They don't feel sure. I've, I've ministered to elderly, wonderful, godly, gracious saints who have had that concern, that lack of assurance. Now again, we are saved not by our good works, but by the work of Christ. But if there is nothing in our lives that suggests a love for Jesus Christ, if there is no fruit in our lives from walking with him and going to the place of worship and so on, then we would have to question whether we are truly saved in the first place. By their fruit, you shall know them. If come the autumn, the apple tree in the man's back garden hasn't produced apples I have to conclude that there wasn't actually any life in that tree no matter what the appearance might have been earlier in the year and it's the same for those who claim to trust in the Lord Jesus if he has put life in us that life will show itself in the fruit of our lives an appetite for God's word a desire to be with God's people when they gather A passion for serving the Lord Jesus in big ways or small. That's all good evidence of true salvation that we really do know and love. And are being directed by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a psalm that can direct our whole lives. And just notice as we close the great note of assurance the psalm ends on in verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved. Shall never be moved. The word could also be never be shaken. All kinds of things in our lives do shake us. Some of you have experienced shaking these past months or even years. Many people right now are being shaken by the cost of living. 
or from living with illness or pain that isn't getting seen to. Some people are literally being shaken today in Ukraine by the impact of bombs and bullets. But there is a place where you can never be shaken. And that is in the presence of God Almighty. At his side, in his glory, you will never be moved. Ralph Davis says, The psalmist began by wanting to sojourn in God's tent. He concludes by assuring us that we are safe in God's hands. Safe, I would add, because of the Lord Jesus Christ. This psalm demands too much for us. But it describes the one perfect person whose righteousness covers over all of our sin. And in describing Jesus, this psalm directs us to live as he lived. And it finishes with this great assurance, the man who does these things shall never be moved. Amen.